When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson on the menu today. Big GC action in Tour de France stage 15 was at Benji today. Uh, but the day before the rest day, before our hard day in stage 16, we've also got Terreno Adriatico, stage 7. We just caught the finish of that before the uh, main GC action kicked off in the Tour de France, so we're multitasking there. Giro Rosa, I'm going to do a separate podcast on that. That'll come out on the rest day tomorrow, wrapping up stages 2 and 3, and maybe discussing a little bit more about the GC on the Giro Rosa. So that'll be a separate pod. Look out for that tomorrow because... Yeah, I haven't been able to catch any of the live, or there weren't were no live images today. So we thought it best to, instead of just reading out the results to you at the end of the pod, actually do it justice and provide some analysis once we can see the 50 minutes highlights of each stage, which if you want to check them out, I think they are on PMG Sports YouTube channel, the extended highlights. So go and check them out if you want to see the race. But on to stage 15 of the Tour de France, a big mountain day, two category ones, the Formentel, the Col de Biche and the Grand Galibier climb. So two category ones, each with pretty steep gradients in them. And obviously the Grand Colombier, which didn't have sections as steep as the category ones, but this stage was a breakaway couldn't really go. We didn't think of, we, we tossed and turned about what would happen, but the first 100Ks is pancake flat. So yeah, that, that was going to make it always difficult for a breakaway. But those climbs were 11.5Ks at 8.1%, starting at 100Ks to go, 7Ks at 8.7% straight afterwards, the Col de la Biche, then a descent and then a sort of undulating, oh, a bit of a valley for 20Ks or so, 15Ks. And then they started the Grand Colombier, about 18Ks at 7.1%. A few flatter sections at mm, maybe 8Ks and 14Ks into the climb. And it was a 175K stage. So not a not a beast of a stage in that it wasn't super long over, you know, 225K mountain stage, but hard still with those category ones. Um, but it would depend on how the GC riders rode it, rode it really. But the for me, the most exciting action of today, and it's a bit of a hot take, was the fight for the intermediate sprints and the break on the flat. What happened when the, the flag went down, Benji? It was a 56K an hour fight for seemingly an hour. It were kind of the run as we expected for the breakaway. We already had named Higita. We had named Roland. We also named that Sagan and Bennett would be seen in the action because we'd expect Sagan to try and go in the breakaway. But Bennett was basically shadowing him every single second from the start. And it's quite intriguing to see. And something I also noticed is that when Trenton was trying to form a breakaway as well, you'd see Sagan respond to that. Very surprised because I would say that Trenton might not be in the green jersey contention as much as the other two there. Yeah, I don't really know why Sagan was bothering to expend energy on that. When you do look at the the numbers and the difference between them, it, it's really like almost impossible for Trenton to win the green jersey, um, except for where Sagan and Bennett both missed the time cut because like Sagan is going to take points. Say say Bennett misses the time cut, then Sagan would take points, you'd think, on Champs-Élysées against Trentin. So, yeah, I don't I don't know why he was too worried about Trentin. Maybe he's just pissed off at Trentin contesting every sprint against him for the last two weeks, and he's, he just didn't want to let him go. But I think Trentin was more trying to get into the break to set up uh, Simon Geschke. I don't know why Sagan did that. He it was It was awesome, though, to see... Sagan and Bennett fighting out like a one-day race. It almost there was attacks like from these big guys, and Sagan looked like he was trying to create separation on the flat in the Tour of Flanders or something. But it was in the first thirty k's of a Tour de France stage, and I guess this is what the green jersey competition is supposed to offer the Tour de France. It's supposed to offer just this different dynamic and thing to be interested in during stages and to spice up stages. And if it wasn't for the that then the first 
100 k's of this stage two hours would have been like unwatchable but yeah i guess because sagan's won it for seven seven times and really easily all that time and you know two years ago whenever when he's got a massive lead on everybody then this wouldn't have happened but that's why yeah it was fantastic to see bennett managed to hold on pretty well but he just he doesn't look like a one-day racer does he benji like what what about bennett screams to you that he he's just not a man that's um even like Sheldapri, sorry if I'm getting his Palmares if I've missed something, but yeah, even like races like Sheldapri, he doesn't look like a right sort of rider that does well in those races. The thing is before the intermediate sprint, a lot of other stuff happened already because well, one of my picks, Higita, I had two picks for the day, Wolan Higita, and Higita was attacking and Jungles was in his wheel, three other riders were in his wheel, and the moment Higita went off the front of that group, well, Jungles took a very short turn at the front of the peloton and basically also went to the right of the road, swiped to the right of the road in a very nonchalant and excessive manner, and basically cut through the front wheel of Higita, straight putting him on the deck. So Higita falls, and he falls pretty hard with his head, so at that moment people were thinking, well, is this a Baudet thing again? Does he have a concussion? He's not really standing up that easily. Goes to the medical car. Only like two minutes later, he rides straight into a roundabout. Due to that crash in the roundabout, there were more rumors that he would have had a concussion and that he should be taken out of the race. So I heard as a rumor that the medical car decided to take him out of the race, but it might also be his decision. I don't know that, so I can't confirm it. There's no real source on the internet that's telling me anything different. But afterwards... Looking at what Jonathan Vartis put on Twitter, he wanted to update that. He said, just fine. He's got a broken hand and fingers. And, well, x-rays will reveal what the exact nature is of the injury. He's got no head injury, so that's great. And the second crash was apparently because he couldn't pull his brakes with his right hand because his hand was broken. And, yeah, it obviously confused people, but I'd like to put on the point that a lot of the internet directly attacked Jungles in the situation because it was a very excessive move. Do you think that Jungles was the perpetrator here? I mean, he's definitely at fault, but like, what's the solution? And I guess it's what we mentioned, I think, on a few podcasts ago. We There needs to be some sort of yellow card system and a, a 200 or 500 Swiss franc fine dished out for whatever it, whatever it is, negligent riding, errant riding, erratic riding that endangered another rider. Um, yeah, a yellow card and some sort of fine I think would be appropriate for Jungles. And to your point about Volters on Twitter, can we just ban World Tour director sportifs or managers from tweeting? Half the time it's just inappropriate stuff. And I know he's probably trying to do the right thing, but he doesn't know that Higita doesn't have a, has, doesn't have a head injury. Has he had an MRI by the time he's gotten into the medic's car? Like, no, he hasn't. So I don't know why he's tweeting that he doesn't have a head injury, you know, Bardet didn't seem to have one until he went and got scans, and he has apparently, according to the team, a small brain hemorrhage. Ian Boswell, I think, who suffered from concussions, was straight onto that, saying, eh, maybe be a little bit more reticent to say he's got no nothing else injured apart from his hand before he's actually checked properly by a doctor uh, off the course. So, yeah, I think <laughs> the the DSs need to be they need to be muzzled on Twitter. It's good entertainment sometimes, but a lot of the time it's just seems to create a ruckus. But yeah, that was a shame for Egita. He was kind of banged up coming into the tour. He's had crashes as well, I think, on stage one. Um, just a shame for him to go out of the, the race that way, although I don't think silver lining is he probably wasn't going to do too much anyway. After that, a break did eventually form because of uh, it was with Simon Geschke, Pierre Hollande, uh, who else? Matteo Trentin, so two CCC riders. Goal for NTT. He's riding really strong, actually. Uh, Hazel Sarada from Cofidis. Am I missing anyone, Benji? Bonifazio and Marcato and Lenoir. Okay, so I'm yeah, missing those three from UAE, TDE, and I've <laughs> forgot, forgotten the other one. The problem with this break was, and you were, you were getting really overexcited, hot under the collar. I could see you all the way from you know from Belgium to Australia. I could sense you getting just worked up over a long getting in this break. He went down to four to one in the live betting because he was clearly the strongest climber in this break. Like, clearly he's, yeah, the best climber on these sort of climbs in this break. But the problem, there were two problems for Roland, and it was no one else really in the break was as 
close enough to his climbing ability to even help on the climbs. So he he was going to get isolated pretty much on the Cat 1, except for Jesus Harada and Geshka, and Gogol eventually seemed to be pretty good as well. But still, he got dropped on the climbs, so he couldn't really pull turns on the climbs. He had to wait for people at the crest. But secondly, Jumbo Visma were not giving the break too much of a leash today. They let the gap go eventually. They they fanned across the road, called a halt to the chase. Mitchell and Scott were chasing, 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 trying to get Chavez in the break. Uh, I think it was Bauer and Impey on the front. That wasn't really working and because Trenton was pulling so hard on that break. And then Jumbo Visma said, no more chasing. And they came to the front with Martin and, and Co. and Rondal Janssen. And just they kept it at about 4 minutes 30 before the first climb. And what was more alarming for you, Benji, as uh, the – Chairman of the Pierre Roland fan club was it Jumbo Visma chasing? Were you were you surprised Jumbo Visma didn't let the break just get like fifteen minutes, or did you think Roland needed other people in that break like a Chavez or a Lutsenko? It was a combination of both, but I do think that it was mainly Jumbo because the thing is, his breakaway had riders strong enough to potentially make it to the line if the gap is nine minutes. But if the gap is four minutes, that's impossible because. You've got two pretty big climbs before you get to the final climb, on which you basically lose two minutes of climb. And if you've got a gap of four minutes, you're going to get over those two climbs with like, what, 30 seconds left? A plateau section of 20 kilometers against the train that is led by Venard or something. So that's not going to happen. So you need a proper gap to do so. I um, heard some rumors this morning, and I heard some other rumors a few days ago, by the way, that Roglic apparently two days ago on the uh, finish to Pumari in the morning, said to Hissing that he wants to win the Sage. And Hissing basically said that uh, that was not going to happen because they were going to play it defensively. And <laughs> so um, I think that's why the break won that day. And today he apparently said the same. It seems like uh, he certainly wanted to win the Sage because he put his riders up front and they paced quite gradually the uh, breakaway back. But I'd like to turn back to a moment just before the first climb of the day the intermediate sprint, we haven't talked about it yet. In the breakaway, we obviously had Trentin. He took uh, the full points there with a close sprint, to be honest, against Bonifazio, who also seemed to care about it, potentially for the money, because he's no way up there in the green jersey classification, so there is no real point for him to go for it that much. But nonetheless, in the peloton, you've got the same thing that happened all the time. You've got a situation in which Mark, who is leading out Bennett, and he basically perfectly leads him out, Sagan in the wheel of Bennett, and Bennett wins a sprint in the peloton, taking, I think, seven points, and then you've got the moment that Sagan just sits up because he doesn't even go past Marku, so Sagan loses an extra point because Marku's in between. Now, he's lost like this quite a few times at the intermediate sprint. Um, well, first of all, Trenton was really pissed at Bonifacio for even contesting the sprint. Um, I don't know why he did. And... Yeah, I was kind of surprised that, I mean, there weren't that many points on offer really, but yeah, Merku just doing a really good job for Bennett in that scenario, even though Bennett was kind of isolated, as you mentioned at the top of the show, when he was chasing down Sagan. Um, yeah, like Bennett had been doing a lot of work on his own without Cavagnar or Askren really. Askren and did a good job, I think, leading out this intermediate sprint. And yeah, it just goes to show that I think if, if he doesn't miss the time cut, Bennett is going to win win the win the green jersey. Um, like Sagan's just not not looking that good and not picking up all the points he needs to. He seemed pretty dispirited actually after yesterday's stage, coming fourth there, missing out on a lot of points in that finish was a big big letdown for him. But yeah, onto the climb, it was UAE and Hessink. Oh, sorry, UAE and yeah, was it Hessink or Wout pacing? Initially, it was Tony Martin at the bottom, but Jumbo Visma and Polak were putting pressure already on Ineos. The gap came down about a minute on that first climb to the break, and it was pretty much, I think, just Herrada, Roland, Korgel, um, in that breakaway, and Geshka. They were left, I think, the, the bigger guys like Trentin and Bonifacio and co. Had, had been dropped off the back already on that climb. Pretty hard climb, that first Cat 1. And... It's a, it's a very similar stage, almost identical to one of the Tour de Lance stages, I think Tour de Lance stage two, where Froome did quite good numbers on this first Cat 1 because it's so steep. But yet one thing we noticed, and I had to put in a call to a few people 
straight away was on that first cat one, I think it was Wavana on the front, correct me if I'm wrong, Benji, and Egan Bernal was losing spots, losing places in, in the field, nearing the crest of that that first climb with like 75 k's to the finish. And it was made evident that this was not like a plan and that there was something wrong because Kwiatkowski was looking around furiously and trying to figure out, he was like trying to find Bernal in the pack and was not readily seeing him. Did you see that on, on TV, Benji? I don't think too many people saw it. It did get called out on Twitter just a little bit after. Um, but yeah, that was not a good sign. And then I tweeted, Bernal is done. He won't even win GC podium. And then I deleted it because I didn't want to be a dickhead. But um, maybe I should have left it up. I don't know. But yeah, that, did you see that in on the end of that climb? or And did you think it's all over for Bernal? Yeah, I noticed that. And at first I was like, maybe it's just him going to the back of the peloton. It's not necessarily that he's dropping, but it was actually reported to Radio Tour that he was actually dropping from the group. So it sure as hell was not great for him on that climb already. And yeah, it was a bit of a, a sign for what's to come at that point. So basically in the breakaway at that point, at that exact moment, you've got Roland and Goggle. And I think Herada was still there as well, that kind of bridged away from the other contenders. And what was noticeable is that Gogol didn't climb as well as the other two. That was clear to me. Herada was typical that he was riding the way he always does. And that was riding his own tempo. And then slowly but surely moving back towards the end of the climb. And he did that as well. Geshko was up there as well for a while. But towards the end of the climb, the Sail de Fomontel, he was not really there anymore. And he went into the downhill section and... There it became very clear that Michael Gogol is a good descender. I did not know that at all, but he stormed downwards and basically dropped the rest at that point. And I think he came at the bottom of the next climb, the Col Biche, with a solid gap of like 15 to 20 seconds on Roland. And I think Herada was still with Roland at that point. And on the Col Biche, we also saw that Roland dropped Herada. And from that point onwards, we had a bit of a chase happening. Roland versus Gogol. And towards the end of the Côte de la Biche in the breakaway, we had them come together. And Roland, well, looked somewhat stronger than my man Gogol. And towards the end of the climb, he actually ended up dropping Gogol to take the full KOM points there. So Roland moving up in the KOM standings. Let's take a look at that very quickly. We've got him on a solid 26 points, if I recall correctly. Yes, that is 10 points less than Kosnefa, who was again not able to get over the First climb of the day. So, how is he still in the KOM jersey? How is like how the man hasn't gone up a cat free in the bunch for a week? How is he still wearing that jersey? It's basically because every single stage you've got other people taking the points. You had Nas Pertes taking it on the stage, he won. Hirschi on the stage as he won in the breakaway. You had Herada taking it today together with Roland. You had Skuyens taking it in one of the earliest stages. Gogol's moving up slowly but surely in that as well. Geshka's taking some points, but not too much. Paulus took some points on other stages. So, well, they're all roughly about between 20 points and 35 points there. And the annoying part there is that if you've got finishers like today and the GC guys end up winning these stages, then you're going to see GC guys up there. And we might even talk about that a bit later already because, yeah, the GC was unhappy with this break and surely showed that in the uh, Cold Labish Ascension and the downhill with a crazy pace by racing. Like we've spoken about Wout van Aert quite a lot recently that he's a great domestique for Jumbo. It's obvious that he's a great domestique by now and he's more than domestique obviously at this point. But honestly, Robert Hessing is really underrated right now. He writes so well. He's a really friendly guy and just takes his orders and does it. And every time they need him, he's there. He's so consistent in that, and I admire that. Yeah, he put a lot of time into that breakaway on that second cat one called Labiche, just riding really good tempo, and yeah, just obviously riding the perfect pace. Just no one could obviously attack from that group. Still, probably he's still putting calories into them. The kilojoules they need to put in. We're gonna maybe talk about kilojoule deficits later um, on this stage, but yeah. Hessink, he pulled, he, he always pulls for about 20 minutes longer than I think. Like, I think I look at him, he gets out of the saddle, and I'm like, he's done now. But then he's still there 20 minutes later, and sort of Wavana's on his wheel. 
They under the center again, Gogol off the court of the beach. He again put like 30 seconds into the peloton. So really good descent from Gogol. He gapped Roland. He gapped Herada. Herada was descending pretty slowly, actually. And yeah, Gogol obviously descending matters because he's not as good a climber as Roland. And he figured, well, I'm not as good a climber. If I have any chance in this stage, I've got to go on the attack here. But on the valley, he actually got caught. There's a, as I said, a, a decent valley before the Grand Colombier starts. And he got caught by Roland. They started swapping turns. I think they were 90 seconds. Yeah, they were 90 seconds ahead of the peloton. Jumbo Visma still leading that peloton. And I'm not sure at the exact moment when Mark Van Aert took over from uh, Hesink, whether it was at the base of the climb or in that valley. But regardless, yeah, Jumbo Visma had six riders there. Ineos actually were a man down, I think. Carapaz was already not there. I think he crashed on this stage or had a mechanical. Uh, so they just had Kwiatkowski and Castroviejo there with Bernal. Carapaz obviously having attacked on stage 13. And... Bahrain actually had a fair few riders. Trek had port with Kenny Alessandra and Astana had Tejada, I think, and maybe an Izaguirre brother with, with uh, Miguel Angel Lopez. Uran was there with Martinez. So even Enric Mas and Valverde were there. So they were all the main guys going into the bottom of the climb. And, yeah, Roland at the base was like, okay, um, there's not enough of a gap to me to the peloton. I think it was like 50 seconds a minute with a 17, 18K climb after he'd been in the break all day. He's like, I better shore up this uh, most combative rider <laughs> competition for today and attacked Gogol and, yeah, immediately put a pretty big gap into him. But they were being chased down. He was being chased down by the Belgian Shepherd, the best, highest-level super domestic we've ever seen, just an insane rider. Wow, van Aert, just... And, uh, Talk us through this pull he did on the Grand Colombier. I don't have to- KM stamps for when he started or finished, Benji, but it went for an eternity. Well, it was a long time because he was basically already starting at the bottom of the end climb called La Colombier because Hesink pulled off, I think, with a good two or one kilometer into the climb because we saw that as Guillaume Martin was having a mechanical at the bottom. The worst moment to have a mechanical at the bottom of the Col de la Colombier. And, well, actually, it's the Col de la Colombier because there's a different climb, but I don't want to go into linguistics here. Nonetheless, first kilometer of the climb, Hesink is off the front, Wout hits the front, Guillaume Martin's off the back, and Martin's chasing, Wout Fanard's in the peloton, and Wout Fanard just mashes pedals. And at the start, I was like, this is a normal tempo. Yeah, this is good. He's going to drop people. And one by one, people started dropping off the back. And some people more expected than other people. But this pull took him from, I think, 16 kilometers from the top up to 9 kilometers to the top. Well, there were two favorites that dropped off because Wout van Aert was pacing. And those favorites were Nairo Quintana and, well, the rider we rode down for stage 15 and 17 at the start of the Tour de France, Egan Bernal. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> like, Wout van Aert... Being on the front after winning Milano Sanremo and Co. and and Criterium de Dauphine stage, Strada Bianca, two stages here, sprint stages, Bernal getting dropped by Wout van Aert with 13 kilometers to go in this climb. Quintana just kind of slid back. I think Quintana was like, nah, today ain't my day. <laughs> and and he, Quintana rode smart. Like you gotta you gotta give credit to him. Quintana rode smart because he's still ninth on GC. And if he has a magic day coming up, he can claw back like a fifth or sixth. You know, he's not that far behind. But yeah, he was like, okay, I'm not having it. I'm not on a good day today. Let me just limit my losses. He slid back gracefully. Still like a long way to go on the climb. And it's still Wattlana dropping Naira Quintana on an HC climb. And then Bernal just went shot out the back really quickly. And... Maybe we'll talk about Ineos and all the reasons for this afterwards. We'll try. Well, let's just let's just get through the stage recap of what happened. Um, but yeah, he went back really quickly. It was Kwiatkowski helping him immediately. Kwiatkowski, we're starting the free Kwiatkowski movement ASAP. Uh, merch for that will be dropping soon. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, Wout van Aert pulled, and all the other GC contenders and their domestics were still there. So like, obviously, we're very excited about Wout van Aert's pull and all that, but. 
still wasn't like shredding the peloton like to, to three or five riders. It was still a decent sized group. And Guillaume Martin being paced by Hazel Serrata was able to catch back up to it. So like it, it was it was more it was still a controlled pace. Wavanart then pulled off. It was then George Bennett pulling. George Bennett's pull, once again, I don't think was particularly strong um, because just visibly you could see the riders just they fanned out a little bit. It wasn't pinned out. No one else got dropped or was really like yo-yoing off the back. I mean, Martin was yo-yoing a bit, but I think that was because he had that unfortunate mechanical and he's not really a GC contender anyway anymore. And Adam Yates attacked with... Six kilometers to go, I think, in the climb with Tom Dumoulin still in the wings and Coos as well for Primoz Roglic. I don't think Tane Pagacha had any other domestiques there at this point. I none of the other domestiques really pulled through, uh, but I'm not sure whether when Tejada and Caruso and Peo Bilbao dropped off. Enric Mass and Valverde were still there. Actually, they looked pretty comfortable on this climb. So I don't. I mean, I've seen the time. Apparently, they did in this climb. We'll talk about that at the end of it. But yeah. Bennett's pull wasn't that strong, is what I'm trying to say. And Yates obviously attacked because he was, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I don't know, Benji. Why did Yates attack? Because it didn't make sense to me on my stream. The thing about Adam Yates is that he said that he wasn't going to go for GC. And then he's accidentally up there in GC. So, well, he's one of those riders that still is a bit, I wouldn't say anonymous because obviously he's not. But for the other GC guys up there, they're not looking at Adam Yates. And maybe he hoped that he would have had a bit of a a longer leash because of that, but it was just not the right moment to do it. Because, well, you said it, Tom Dumoulin and Sepp Kaz were both there and they sure as hell weren't looking tired yet, looking at how Roglic was commanding them to keep on pacing. It wasn't going to stop very soon. So I was expecting a, a similar scenario to Toudelin, Col de Colombia, to have Roglic come up in the last kilometer by the work of his teammates, and then he just matches pedals and wins the stage. At that point, I thought that was going to happen, but towards the end of the climb, when we go even further and further, we started noticing that, well, I started noticing that Lopez was moving to the front a bit more, so it looked like Lopez was having a much better day than previously, because while we haven't really spoken about Lopez much on this podcast, the man is up there in GCU. He was six before the stage, and he wasn't too far behind, so he's been really consistent. And Yeah, Dumoulin brought back Yates gradually. And the, the problem was Yates is only 90 seconds behind, so when you attack with 6Ks to go, TJV can't let you have that much of a gap because he's actually threatening at that point Roglic's position on GC. So if Adam Yates was 10 minutes behind or 20 minutes behind, that's the perfect place to attack because no one could really be... Why would they be bothered bringing him back? But he was too close on GC, and so he got brought back by Dumoulin, who then paced until about 1,800 metres to go. No one else was getting dropped, by the way. They were just, at this point, though, we should say, Bernal is losing time, just losing so much minutes every kilometre. And with about 2Ks to go, had already lost like four minutes. It looked like he was going to lose even more. Um, I think he ended up losing like seven and a half minutes, seven minutes, 40 seconds at the end of the stage. Dumla pulled a really, really strong turn and a long turn, but it was through that flatter section with three Ks to go. I felt like the GC riders were getting a little bit a little bit antsy and they weren't really I don't think they were at their limit either. I don't think like uh Port certainly wasn't at his limit, neither was Pagacha either. And I was thinking, okay, well we've seen this playbook before. Coos is fresh. Coos was nose breathing this whole time. He's sitting behind Roglic. And then Dumoulin still keeps pulling into the last kilometer. They go into the Flamme Rouge, still Dumoulin pulling. And then Dumoulin pulls off and basically stops at a standstill with 700 meters to go, or 650, and Roglic attacks with Pogacar pretty much straight onto his wheel and Coos having not pulled at all. Roglic attacks, Pogacar closes it down, Coos is on Pogacar's wheel, uh, Port is chasing it down pretty well as well. The little bit of a gap that's opened up, or, or the Movistar rise with distance, a gap opened up to Rigoberto Uran. I think Lopez fought back onto the wheel of those guys as well. He was looking pretty good. Um, Lander was struggling, I think, a little bit. He was struggling to respond to that acceleration. 
And then Koo slid up in front of uh, Roglic, kind of like what like he was doing his best to move up and block Pogacar and move up in front of Roglic. But then it was too almost too late for him to begin setting pace because it was 300 to go. Richie Port tried to then attack Roglic, I think, going for the stage. Uh, and then Pogacar went up the outside, Roglic on the inside, on the left-hand bend, but you could see... Even with Roglic probably getting in his wheel a little bit, Pogacar's attack was like he had really, really fresh legs. Like he snapped um, and looked like he had more at the line. And Roglic wasn't even really close to contesting the final sprint in the last 100 meters against Pogacar. So Pogacar played it really well, took another stage win, his second for this year's Tour de France, gaining, I think, four seconds on Roglic because of time bonuses. Roglic came second on the line. And the third best climber, because we told you, we told you he's the third, well, I did, he's the third best climber in this year's tour. Richie Port was five seconds behind, also picking up a few bonus seconds. Miguel Angel Lopez, fourth, eight seconds behind Pogaccia. And then Enric Mas, probably his best performance for quite a while, 15 seconds back. Kuz, sixth, Landa, seventh, Adam Yates, eighth. Uran was 18 seconds back. And Valverde rounded out the top 10. Quite a nice performance from him, coming into a bit of form, actually. Tenth, so he could be a man to get into a break and win a stage. Valverde using the Tour de France as some training on GC. The big movements were well, obviously Quintana lost oof, four minutes, maybe three minutes. I think about four minutes, three and a half minutes around there. Roglic still first, Pagacha second, forty seconds behind. Uran moves up to third, a minute and thirty-four behind. Lopez moves up two spots to a minute forty-five back. Yates moves up two. Two minutes behind, Port is now sixth. He leapfrogged Lander, actually. He's two minutes 13 back. Mars is eighth, Quintana ninth, and Tom Dumoulin is now tenth, actually. Five minutes and 12 seconds behind. Egan Bernal drops 10 positions from third to 13th, eight minutes and 25 seconds behind Primoz Roglic. So Paganta takes the bonus seconds. He looks to be the main threat to Primoz Roglic because... Whilst Uran is only only 90 seconds behind, it's clear he's not climbing near the level of Roglic or Pogaccia. So given that he doesn't have the team support, he really he, Uran is going to be protect, trying to protect that third spot. And we, we spoke about that on the stream or I did on the stream that that third spot is going to be a massive fight between Uran, Lopez, Yates maybe, Port and Lander. And we'll see if Quintana can do something crazy <laughs> in one of the stages, but I doubt he'll be able to. But yeah, what did you what did you think about the way Roglic approached that sprint, Benji? Given that what we've seen at Dauphiné, where we usually Yumbo Visma used Coos to just shred it for a minute and then drop him off with 400, 350 to go. What did you think about Roglic attacking with a fresh Coos there? It depends because maybe they want to save Kuz as much as possible for to, for like after the rest day, which is a bit weird because tomorrow's a rest day. So I'd say that you want to use both of your men and have them both equally depleted. And Tom Dumoulin basically went all out and Kuz never hit the front, like you said. So you probably would have had a better outcome for Roglic if you had Sapkas actually pace and actually do a proper lead out for Roglic because. Well, it looked like Roglic didn't really have the firepower at the end of the stage. He attacked at a certain point, and that attack was way less than we saw at Tour de la, for example. And it was way less than we saw on Ossier Maillet. So it seems like he lost a bit of that kick at the end of today's stage. And on that note, lost it to Pogacar, who still had that towards the end. Now, the difference between Pogacar and Roglic on... The stage of OCMLED was huge in regards to their kick. So at that point, you see a, a bit of a, a big reducement since then. And as an extra, you've got probably some people that are going to wonder whether Roglic gave it away to Pogacar. But I see that as impossible because you've got him letting his whole team pace throughout this stage. You're not going to do that just to have someone else actually just take it and gift it to him. That's that's impossible because that's a disrespect to your teammate. So Roglic would not do this and did not do this. And there was a sign of disappointment on his face on the finish line 
if I analyzed his face properly, because usually you can't get any feeling of what Rogic was thinking on his bike, because even when he dropped in the Giro last year, it looked like he looked exactly how he looked today, which is kind of weird, because he never looks like he suffers, and he never looks like he's close to suffering, but then suddenly snaps if he does. We haven't seen it in a while. At the end of today's stage, there was a slight bit of disappointment there, so I believe that Roglic did not anticipate Pogacar to take the stage away from him. Yeah, I think he got overconfident and had too much confidence in his kick, which wasn't there because, like, Richie Port was closing the gap to him. So, like, no offense to Richie Port, like, he's he's riding an absolute, an unbelievable tour. But from what we saw at Dauphiné and Tour de Lain, when Roglic kicks with 500 to go and an uphill finish, it should be lights out for someone like Richie Port and. and yeah, he's bridging back to him pretty quickly, to be honest, and then even attacking him. And Lopez bridging back and looking good too. So, yeah, I think I think Roglic like still has the strongest kick in the in a five second sprint. And if he'd had Coos lead, well, really, I think he should have actually let Coos exactly attack yes because if Coos, because if if Coos attacks, then maybe no one does anything and everyone just stalls. And then Coos can go get stage win. So Coos attacks and he gets a stage win. What a what a great story for Yumbo Visma and for Coos. Um, if someone else does want to follow it because they want to get the stage win, well, then Roglic can slide onto their wheel. So and then probably beat them in the sprint, having getting their draft. So yeah, Coos looks really fresh. Like he looked really good, and I think Coos attacking would have been the better option, but. Yeah, I don't really know what Roglic was thinking actually at the end because it's not it's not charity him letting Pogacar like come over the line first. People might write that for people who haven't really watched the race. You might see that tomorrow. That's just ludicrous because Pogacar is his biggest and only real threat for GC. He's 40 seconds behind and Pogacar could beat him in the time trial. Like what happens if you stuff up a bike change in the time trial? What happens if you have a mechanical? Um, what happens if he keeps losing bonus seconds at the end of climbs? Like, he doesn't want to gift four seconds to Tadej Pogacar when this tour could be decided by five or ten seconds here or there. And Benji's not going to disagree with with me. I think Tadej Pogacar is stronger than Primoz Roglic. And we asked the question the other day, if Pogacar was on Jumbo Visma, he'd probably be winning this Tour de France, like, almost easily. Like when you look at what's happening on these climbs, I think Pogacar looks super fresh. And the reason the reason he couldn't attack on the climb earlier is because of just, yeah, Sky, Discovery, Yumbo Visma train, it just mathematically doesn't work uh, unless you've got a big tailwind or something or it's really steep. When they got Kus and Dumoulin there, even if you are the strongest climber, he's stronger than Roglic by a, a small margin, but that's not enough to negate the effect of TJV would have just thrown men at him. And ground him down like what happened with Adam Yates and then it would have been he might have been exposed so yeah I'm really excited for the GC battle between the two Slovenians there's gonna be no quarter taken it's that they're gonna attack each other um it doesn't matter that they're both Slovenian so I'm really excited for that going into the rest day tomorrow I'm sure they'll be thinking Jumbo Visma how they're gonna plan it Benji do you think next time there's a stage like this with bonus seconds on offer if you're Jumbo Visma do you let the break go I would, because, well, basically we saw today what could happen and Pogacar smells blood today because he smelled, well, after the stage, he's going to notice that he can beat Roglic and it's certain that he's going to try and use that more because he's been so offensive this whole to the fronts. It's basically the only GC rider that I've seen properly attacking. We saw Bernal attacking yesterday at the end of a hill stage, which looking at it now, was very desperate and probably a very desperate move. But that was, I think, the only time we saw Bernal attacking next to that one time on stage, I don't know which stage it was, on a bonus gate somewhere that he launched a sprint early. But outside of that, yeah, nobody else really attacks outside of Pogacar. And I think that's why a lot of people are starting to love Pogacar because he's the one that everybody is looking up to. Yellow yeah, Visma's goal when they get when they have the DS meeting with briefing with the team in the morning isn't hey guys we really want to make this the most exciting stage possible and have have make sure Primoz is under threat and uh, and all that no, it's the opposite it's like ride conservative ride tempo 
make sure no one else can attack. You got young, you know, like it's of course their goal is to win the Tour de France, and yeah, it's it's Skytrain tactics. It's nothing, it's nothing new. I, I said on the stream, I said, hey, listen, this could be pretty boring actually, and just a sprint at the end because, and like credit to Pagacha because he is maybe the one man we've seen in the last 10, 15 years that can break a train because he's just that good and he's that aggressive. But um, let's talk. People have probably been waiting, Benji. Egan Bernal, that's the biggest news of the day. Losing that amount of time is crazy. And now we've been speaking often about probably our concern for Egan Bernal. Warning signs were when he, like, he was getting beaten in at the end of stages, but it wasn't just in the final sprint. He was getting dis- he was getting distance quite early. Then stage thirteen was a real nightmare for him, losing a minute, I think, or fifty seconds. Again, he got dropped when Pagacha attacked. When it was still a VO two max effort, it wasn't an anaerobic kick. It was still a VO two max effort with four to five minutes left in the climb, I think, and lost a minute. So he was going backwards. I said he cracked. People said he didn't crack. I was like, eh, it didn't look too good to me. Then we had the bizarre attack yesterday, which it made so little sense that Benji and I even refused, our brains refused to compute that it was him attacking. We thought Mikhail Kwiatkowski had been freed from the Ineos prison, or it was Carapaz attacking because he's a sort of aggressive guy. But it was Bernal attacking at the end of that stage. And I was like, that's kind of desperate because you can't gain that much time on GC. And like I respect the I respect the effort, but it makes very little sense from a for a guy who we had written down, I'm sure Benji, you probably we picked Bernal, or I did at least, to do well on this stage in the preview. You've got this day coming up the day after that, and he's attacking, trying to get time back on GC. It's just really weird. Then he had the interview with not a not a sponsored plug. I'm not contractually obliged to shout them out all the time, but yeah, ITV Sport had an interview with him, and he sounded defeated this morning. And obviously hindsight, 2020, reading into that. But at the time, I was, I was in the bath watching it, and I thought it at the time, and I had to hold the phone up to my ear to read it closely. And he said, he actually says, and it might have been a Freudian slip, I can't put time into them. And... I'm not sure he actually meant to say that, but he's like, I, I pretty much can't put time into Jumbo Visma and yeah, I'll see how my legs feel. And it was, he looked defeated. Then he got distance sort of getting gapped a bit on that first cat one. And then like, what do you think, Benji? Do you think it's a hunger flat? Because how is he getting dropped before Valverde and Caruso and Peo Belbao? Like that's what doesn't make sense to me. I get it if, I get it if he gets distanced in the last three minutes, but the pace wasn't that hot like he should still be there if his numbers are where they should be so like what's happening i genuinely don't know and the thing is while he was climbing at the end of the stage he was making a phase of like i can't believe this is happening yeah i don't know what the reason could be that he dropped so early it's impossible for me to really analyze that aspect because as you say he's one of the fast gc riders that drops so you've never really seen that from bernal Ever, and this is the first time—the first time we see that properly. Well, we had a bit of signs, obviously, on Pimari, but this is very different. This is a total collapse. This is Pino style. Maybe we will see after the stage what Ineos will say about it. They posted on Twitter that he finished bravely and fought until the end. I don't believe that because he was at four minutes, and after that, he went to seven minutes, like almost instantly. And looked like he was just talking to Quillen in the last three kilometers. So, oh no, they gave up. He gave up for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he made she. He then actually, I think to, they were like, okay, well, we may as well lose like even more time so that then we could maybe go for a stage later. But yeah, he he was. They were talking at the end, so they didn't like fight to the line. Quintana fought to the line and saved that top ten position. So big respect to Quintana on a difficult day for him after a crash yesterday. He was bandaged up. He had Warren Buggy pacing him for a bit. Yeah, big respect to Quintana. But yeah, Wout Van Aert was and Pierre Roland were back in the Kwiatkowski Bernal group. Yeah, I think Ineos have got some explaining to do because Bernal losing that much time on a climb where I've seen there's been some preliminary calculations of the base, the first half or so, 
was done at like uh, 1690 VAM and sub-6 watts per kilo. For Bernal, Bernal, there's no way he was able to hit. What he should be able to hit for 40 minutes, 45 minutes, is 6.3, like pretty comfortably. I've seen him do that in training, low altitude. He should be able to do 6.3 also for 40, 45 minutes, and he wasn't able to hit those numbers today. So his statement that he he's hitting his numbers is not true. And, yeah, like he, he completely cracked. It was a complete disintegration, and we were talking about well, I said at the top, okay, it's not a big mountain stage, it's not like 225Ks or anything, but he was going, I was, I was thinking, okay, maybe he's bonking, maybe he's Mr. Gel, maybe there's some sort of, yeah, he's, he's, he's they've not calculated his calorie requirements, requirements properly, but then he was going backwards on the first climb when they put the, the pressure on. So that was only 100Ks into the stage. So just something's clearly not right with him maybe he's overtrained from all those apocalypse climbs at altitude back in Colombia I don't know but to lose seven minutes like that where Quintana was able to fight back bravely and maintain his top 10 and ride pretty smart for where he was after crashing pretty disappointing from Bernal I don't know if he's sick like I don't, I don't know but Ineos they can't just be like oh he, he he's hitting his numbers because no 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 Richie Port's hitting his numbers. Mika Landers hitting his numbers. Enric Mass is hitting his numbers. That's why they're in the wheels, not being able to attack, but also not getting dropped and then sort of losing 5 or 10, 12 seconds at the line. If you're hitting your numbers, you don't lose 7 minutes. And, yeah, you don't need me to explain that to you. So, I don't know. What, what, we, what also is a big thing, Benji, is Richard Carapaz was pulled out of Giro leadership to support Bernal, and he just mailed in the end of this climb, talking to Kwiatkowski, how is he going to feel, Carapaz, um, after that happening? And he's got no GC ambitions here. He's not been allowed to go for stage wins or go on the break or anything. Um, I know he, he signed on the dotted line at Ineos, and this is what can happen, but surely morale is not going to be good at Ineos. Towards Bernal, there has to be this pressure that, also from the fans, because we already saw from, well, the last week that, Apparently, Quintana asked and kind of showed faith towards the Colombian Alliance and basically said that they should try and work together a bit to beat the Slovenians. And Bernal was like, no, in one of the races in the past, the same was happening and you decided not to help me. So why would I help you? And that might have backfired a slight bit today, that statement. But from that statement, Colombia has quite a few people angry at Bernal because of that. Because Quintana is obviously one of the most loved cyclists in Colombia right now. And Bernal is not at that level, even though he won the Tour de France. Which means that, yeah, he's got pressure from Colombian fans. Maybe not all of them. I don't want to generalize anything here. Obviously, he's going to have a lot of fans in Colombia as well. Additionally, you've got the supporters of Ineos that were fans of Froome and Grain Thomas. Because now pretty much every tweet on Ineos' tweets are... Well, you forgot Thomas and Froome, so what were you expecting? So basically, they're they're really pushing on the agenda that Froome and Thomas were not selected, and that's why this is happening, which I believe is not true, because I don't believe Thomas and Froome would even come close to the competition of the Slovenians. Thomas may be more than Froome, because Froome is nowhere at the moment regarding uh, his form that we see at Tireno. So, yeah, do you think you've got something to say about this? Do you think that there's pressure from... Well, that is feeling pressure in general, the Colombians and the Ineos fans. Yeah, I, f- I feel really bad for Egan Bernal, and he, full credit to him, he, like, sure, it was a capitulation, but that might be for justifiable reasons. The man might be sick, he, or the young guy, you know, he's, he might be sick, or something might be happening that's completely outside of his control, and obviously if he's sick, Ineos aren't going to have a press conference two days ago and say, hey, Egan's a little. Egan's feeling under the weather. Just so you know, Jumbo Visma, um, he's not feeling too good. So, if he if he was kind of feeling under the weather, we wouldn't have known before this stage. Um, but yeah, that could be an answer. Yeah, it looked. It didn't look like a bonk to me. It just looked like something was wrong. And I do feel bad for him because he won the Tour de France last year. People were saying he's going to win the next eight Tour de Frances. I said that was ludicrous. I'm not. I, I got to admit, I wasn't as You've been 
credit to you, Benji, on that Pogaccia hype train pretty hard that I always thought Pogaccia will win more races and grand stage races and grand tours than Bernal because he's way more well-rounded. And I think now with this happening today, there'll be some revisionists. Well, there'll be some looking back at what happened last year and I'm going to do a video analysing the different levels between the two tours, just like numeric with the numbers, the VAMs on the climbs. And, you know, we'll see that last year's tour was not near the level of this year's tour in terms, in terms of the competition. Uh, on the climbs it's they're not even comparable and if you need any evidence of that it's Alaphilippe wearing the yellow jersey for that long and yeah so I feel like Bernal won the tour you know not as strong a year I'm not going to call it a weak year because he was the best rider that turned up to the biggest race of the year and he won it but the it wasn't as strong as this year but yeah so he's had all that pressure on him Bernal has all of Colombia supporting him, back to defending champion. Ineos don't select Froome and Thomas. That's a big drama, the home favourites, even though based on the information available at the time, we thought that was the only correct decision and they picked the strongest team they had at the time. Froome, obviously, there's going to be so many articles saying, oh, that this is what happens. They should have taken Thomas and Froome. Froome, obviously, wouldn't have been any help at all. And if Thomas was or is at the level that he could have helped and competed, then what was he doing at Dauphiné? He obviously was mailing it. So it's still Thomas's fault because he showed nothing before the tour. And if he did have the legs, he mailed it in at Dauphiné or he didn't have the legs at the Dauphiné. And maybe the level at Terreno isn't that high at the moment. So I don't really think Thomas would have helped. And I still don't think... I don't think Thomas would have probably come top 10 on GC either. So, yeah, I don't think it would have made a difference picking them. And I'm not sure Thomas was too excited about riding as a domestique for Egan Bernal either. So, yeah, but that being said, Egan obviously wanted his team. He got Carapaz in, Amador in, Carapaz out of his Euro team. That's additional pressure. It's like, okay, we're doing this for you, we're doing this for you Egan. We're agreeing to what you, the team you want selected. But um, you better deliver, and he he hasn't. So it's a shame for him for that to happen, to lose so much time. I thought him getting a third here in the tour, him getting third or second would have been a, a, a massive performance. That would have been an elite performance given how his team isn't as strong as Jumbo Vismas, but, yeah, it's not. I don't know what he'll do now. Do you think he'll abandon? Do you think he'll go for stages? I, I don't know. But what, what happens with Ineos when they don't even have a rider contesting GC in the tour? Do they Is Kwiatkowski freed for the rest of the tour? Well, if we look at the past there, we've got basically only to 2014 to base off, and they were terrible for the rest of the Tour de France, if I recall correctly. So I don't expect that. I expect Bernal to fight at certain points. And he said that he would, so he's kind of well, made himself a promise that he's going to do stuff towards the end of the Tour de France. And he might have given up on GC, but that does not mean he can't do anything anymore for the rest of the stages. There's not too many stages left after the rest day. Outside of GC, I want to make up one more last thing because I think we've mentioned roughly everything we want to talk about on this stage part. And we're going to talk about the GC way more on tomorrow's rest day recap. So you can look forward to that want to slowly take a look at the KOM here because we see that Cosmify is still first, surprisingly, on 36 points, but second and third are the GC favorites. We've got Pogacar on 34 points, two points after Cosmify, and Roglic on three points. So you've basically got the situation where on every single one of these mountain stages, the GC finished first. Then you will have, well, them taking KOM points. And... The only stage where that can basically change, in my honest opinion, is stage 17, where we've got the finish on Code La Loz, and I heard that there's double points both on Madeleine and Code La Loz, so that would mean there's about 80 points if you get first on both climbs. So if the break wins that stage, then it can still be won by a breakaway rider, but if Jumbo rides on that stage, then you're going to see most likely Pogacar Roglic taking the Polkadot jersey, which... Has been quite a few years, I think. I think Quintana won it once, once when Froome was winning the tour, but has anyone since then really won KOM that was not in the breakaway? We had Bardet last time, 
We had Barguil at a certain point, if I recall correctly, and Ala Philippe. So yeah, it's been a while since we had that that possibility. Yeah, and we're gonna on the rest day podcast tomorrow. We might not get a guest because I've been a bit lax in reaching out to people, but we're gonna preview what's gonna happen with the jerseys in the next few days, um, and what's gonna happen on GC. We'll obviously preview stage sixteen, another important stage. Obviously, there's another second round of COVID tests tomorrow, so. Uh, we could see hopefully nothing happens there and they all get to start again like they did um, after the first COVID round of COVID tests. But yeah, should be another jam-packed podcast tomorrow looking at what's going to happen in the in the rest of the stages. But I think that's enough for Tour de France Stage 15. Roglic and Pogaccia going to the line together. Pogaccia probably looking like the strongest rider in the Tour, but Jumbo clearly have the strongest team by a country mile. Bernal losing a lot of time and Richie Porte is the second coming of Jesus Christ. But on to Terreno Adriatico, stage seven from Pieve to Loreto, 181Ks, a rolly course. It looks set. It looked perfect again for Matthew van der Poel. It finished a finishing climb. It was called like a muro, I think, of Loreto. It was. It looks not too menacing on the, the overall profile, 2.6Ks at 4.5%. But believe me, there's a steep section in it, um, quite steep actually. Uh, they call it a wall, and it looks like there's like a left-hand bend round to the finish. It gets really steep, but it's not too long either. So, yeah, Matthew van der Poel was one of the favourites. We we're trying to watch this at the same time. TJV were lining it up in the tour. But, yeah, what break it down. What happened in this stage, Benji? Because I checked in when Fabro was clear. So we had a breakaway that was quite enticing. We had riders in there that you would not necessarily expect to be in the breakaway once again. A few days ago, we were unsure whether Van der Poel bridged up to a breakaway or was in it. This time around, he was in it. There were other people in, like Campanards and such, but mainly the rider that was very strong in that breakaway was Matteo Fabro. He showed towards the end of the stage in the last 20 kilometers that he was basically one of the better climbers there, but I think he left his shot a bit early because with about 20 kilometers to go on a hill, he decided to jump away. He gained quite a gap. He held that at 20 seconds for the next 10 ish kilometers. And at that moment, you had attacks from the back, including a group with Fulsang launching away. And in that group, Fulsang was, well, extremely strong, extremely strong. Because with about 20 kilometers to go, there was three minutes between the peloton and the front of the race. So you would be like, well, the breakaway has it. It became really close towards the end because at a certain point, Fulsang kept on pacing in that chasing group. Between the peloton and the breakaway, Fulsang came closer and closer on like a minute at a certain point. With about 10-ish kilometers to go, at that point the peloton was two minutes behind, so they came closer. And I think there was a rough gap of 30 seconds there between Fabro and Van der Poel at that point. So you've got a situation where you've got Fabro in front, a group behind them 30 seconds, and then a group another time behind that 30 seconds, including Fulsang. That second group obviously included... Well, Mathieu van der Poel, we talked about it earlier that he was prime favorite for the stage because of the Muro, but the parkour was really tough, harder than the usual Muros he can do really well. So I was wondering if he maybe, well, was not strong enough to catch Fabro towards the end because Fabro is in front and Mathieu van der Poel mashes his pedals trying to chase back Fabro, but doesn't really get any change there because the rest of the people in this chasing group we're also doing the similar turns. So it wasn't like Vanderpool was all out the guy that was chasing him. Everybody was doing his part. But towards the end, Vanderpool really, really pushed more than the others. And towards the end, he was the strongest rider in that second chasing group. In regards to Fulsang, he also kept on pedaling. He came closer and closer. And the peloton kept on coming closer and closer in the lead of Mitchelton for, well, GC leader Simon Yates. Yeah, the gap was just, it, it stayed stable. It's like Fabro looked like he was kind of struggling, but then, and you had the guys chasing behind in the group, they're working okay. As you said, Van der Poel pulling hard turns, but the gap wasn't really coming below 22, 24 seconds. And then something snapped in Van der Poel's mind with maybe a kilometer, 1200 meters to go. And he's like, okay, enough messing about. It's time to, time to actually bring this guy back. And he... I think he was pulling with a, another Sunweb rider and then Van der Poel like attacked across. I think he had Ruben Guerrero with him, the Portuguese rider for education first. But I think he, 
Guerrero was kind of off Van der Poel's wheel, and Van der Poel just Amstel Gold style, except minus having the peloton on his wheel, just chased back Fabro. And the minute he had him in his sights on this wall, he just gained back that time so quickly, even putting four seconds into Fabro and Guerrero at the line. So he went round Fabro like they were doing a different race. And he got he had time to zip up the jersey and, and posse up for the finish line. A really good performance from Van der Poel. Back-to-back wins for Alpes and Phoenix at Torreno. For a team like Alpes and Phoenix, I know they got Van der Poel. Like he's not a he's not a pro Conti rider, but still, you know, World Tour stage race is quite a prestigious race for a pro Conti team to be getting back to back wins. It's very nice. Merlier is yesterday, obviously, and yeah, it's the Van der Poel we expected of of old. He, I think we were we were a little bit disappointed in him in earlier stages because we thought he would have been contesting the front, but yeah, this was really dominant. You look at the other riders around there. There's no rulers. It's except Aramburu actually. Lovely performance from him, but or he's not really a ruler either. But yeah, it's just the people you might see at Paris Roubaix, Flanders, they're not here. He's just so versatile, Van der Poel. The way he's ridden in these Italian races, Lombardia and Piemonte, is really special for a guy of his size. Even in the break, you you can see physically how much bigger he is than those guys. And to win a stage like this is really impressive and we shouldn't lose sight of that even though he is mddp and we expect the world from him it's still really impressive when you see you know second is guerrero third fabro fourth kelderman another another nice race from kelderman today arambaru fifth eighth sixth seventh woods eighth thomas ninth vlasov and tenth micah they were all pretty much on the same time those gc guys in the last five so no real movement on gc except woods actually gaining four seconds on James Knox, who got distance at the end. So, yeah, not not great for Knox, that happening, but he's eighth now on GC. The crazy thing about this stage to me is the fact that you've got a situation where at 20 kilometers to Gyogo, you've got three minutes difference, and at the finish line, that difference is down to 10 seconds, and that really shows how much that difference was closed down just on the last kilometer and a half. So this Muro really did Murohui style, style stuff, and I love that. Nonetheless, tomorrow's stage is very different. We've got the defining stage for GC after the mountain stage of yesterday, of two days ago, actually. We've got a time trial in Benedetto del Toronto, San Benedetto del Toronto, the usual stuff. We've got a 10.1 kilometer time trial. It's pan flat and might be decisive because we've got, well, Simon Yates up front, but, but he's got, I think, 46 seconds on. The man himself, Green Thomas, 39 actually. So do you think that Thomas is going to get over Yates? Because Yates has some good time trials in the past, I think in Paris last year. So he's not exactly the worst, is it? But Thomas is really good. So 39 seconds, do you believe it's possible? Four seconds a kilometer is quite a lot on a 10K time trial. Like Yates is the favorite to still win GC. Uh, it's pancake flat time trial. Four seconds a kilometer. I don't know what the speed difference is. My my quick maths ain't that good, but yeah, I I'd be surprised if Yates lost it, given that I don't think Thomas is. He's looked good, but he's not in maybe prime form. Um, Vlasov can he? He's probably stuck there on fourth, so Vlasov is probably going to be shut out of the podium. Forty nine seconds behind Yates. Can Micah hold on to that podium? I think he probably can. Actually, I think maybe even if if Thomas leapfrogs. Leapfrogs 23 seconds into second ahead of Micah. I think Micah should still hold on to third in this sort of time trial. Um, and the favourites for the stage are between, was it uh, Rowan Dennis and Filippo Ganna? So I'm really interested to see how they go. Also, Michael Matthews quite good in these sort of time trials. Victor Campenaut's here as well. What other time trials do we have here? I'm just having a quick look. Bodnar. I said Bodnar's quite a good time trial for Bora Hansgrohe, not to be, I think he won a Tour de France stage in a time trial, actually. Um, but yeah, even Jan Tratnik for Baron McLaren, he's pretty good time trialist. So Eduardo Affini for Mitchell and Scott. So really the who's who of all of the European time trials, actually, plus Rowan Dennis. So I'm, I'm really keen to actually see this result tomorrow. I'm, I'm actually going to follow it quite closely, given that it is a Tour de France rest day. So... We'd encourage you all to watch the Terreno Stage 8 and more so 
Oh, fuck, you can't. So I was going to say, I was just about to say, follow Zero Rosa stage tomorrow because it's a rest day, but you can't because it's not live. Don't need to beat that dead horse, but maybe catch up on the highlights, the extended highlights from Zero Rosa on PMG Sport. Look out for my Zero Rosa wrap-up podcast dropping tomorrow, plus our rest day podcast. You can be podcasted out of your ears. Um, dropping two in one day, plus the long one today. We couldn't stop going today just with the Bernal dropping. We had to talk about it at length. If you like the pod, all we ask is give, give us a review or a rating, just a quick little rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. It really helps out a lot. We've already got more than a lot of the institutional ones. It's crazy, the community support we have for the pod. But yeah, that's all we've got from today. But do know that you can always reach out to us on Twitter, which hashtag LRCP. We're going to be responding to some questions on tomorrow's podcast after the uh, discussions about GC and such. So be sure to do so. Once again, thank you for the support. And ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.